It's time for We Are Just Christians live from Savona Church in Port St. Lucie. Here are your hosts, Mike Smith and Gary Jones. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning and welcome to We Are Just Christians. Thanks for tuning into the show today. We are very happy that you did that. Hope that we can make your time with us this morning worthwhile and thought-provoking. As you just heard, my name is Mike Schmidt. I'm one of the hosts of the show. I'm also the preacher and one of the elders of the Church of Christ here on Savona Boulevard. With me, as almost always usual, is Gary Jones. How you doing, Gary? I'm doing fine this morning, Mike. Much better than than the past. Yeah, he's been uh, been uh, under the weather for a while. I think he's finally on the mend. We're certainly happy about that. Um, it makes the show much better when both of us are here, able to do the things we like to do. But this is a live call-in show, and I'm going to give you the numbers or ways to reach us here in just a moment if you want to jot those down. But uh, uh, we say this every week, but I, I know we, hopefully we have some new listeners. I want to make sure that everybody's clear about this. Being a live call-in show, or we're, we're here to have a conversation with the listeners or whoever would like to get in touch with us. Uh, some types of shows like this are just throw things out there to be controversial or whatever the case may be. We don't mind being controversial uh, because it takes two to have a controversy. If everybody would just agree with me, Gary, everything would be fine. There wouldn't be any controversies. Right. But we understand that, it, that, that we might say something controversial. But that's not the point of the show. It's just to aggravate controversy. That's what I'm trying to get at. The point of the show is to learn and have a discussion. If you disagree, you can feel free to disagree because we're not here to bait you or embarrass you in some way. We just want want you to say what you think is right, and we'll talk about that. We'll try to give you uh, the scriptures to go along with what we're saying. I think that's the main thing that we're trying to get across to people on the show, Gary, being just a Christian is fundamentally in the days that we live in about going back to the Word of God, the New Testament, and finding out what it says in a plain and simple reading of it without the overlay of human creeds and traditions and and our own feelings and thoughts about that, just trying to figure out what's there and then trying to live by that. That's what the church ought to do as as an organization or as a uh, collective, and that's what we ought to do as individuals. And that's what Jesus told us, basically. Yes. He gave us his word, didn't he? And we're supposed to follow that word. Exactly. Basically, I've quoted it a lot, but it's John 12, 48. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. Correct. And that's why we uh, that's why we try to do this urgently. We try, we try to get people's minds and hearts involved. And, and you're certainly welcome to disagree or to ask questions. And that's what the show is about. It's calling in. So if you want to reach us today, you can reach We Are Just Christians at 772-340-1590. That's the regular call number, I believe, for WPSL. 772-340-1590. 1590 is how you get a hold of us. And we'll take your call, take your question, comment, whatever, uh, and, and you can respond to that if you'd like. And then we're going to give you the last word um, in the conversation. So you don't feel like we're just trying to dominate you or to you know embarrass you in some way. But in any event, you, you feel free to call in. We'd love to hear from you today, and we'll put you at the front of the line. Uh, Ray at the station there will patch you through to us. We're in our church building through Skype, and we can have a conversation. Now, if you, if you can't do that, um, a lot of people uh, text the show, or text us. We have two text numbers that you can just use anytime during the show or during the week. If we can possibly respond during the show, we will do that. Uh, and sometimes, most of the time we can. It depends on the circumstances. But you can reach Mike at 772-260-6120. 772-260-6120. Six one two zero, and uh, we will uh, take your text. You can text me anytime, and we'll try to take your text. Comment on that, and you can text back. Gary's text number is seven seven two two six zero six two two zero. Very similar. Seven seven two two six zero six two two zero. Well, I just got noticed. Uh, we've got a caller on the line. Are you there, Jerry? Uh, good morning, Mike. Good morning, Gary. I don't know if you're by yourself, Mike. I'm uh, not. Gary's here. He's here. Uh, I know Alexander the White was uh, son of Philip II, but I was wondering about uh, Octavian relative to the fall of the, the city-state uh, the colonial republic uh, and uh, 
when they say crossing the Alps, were they talking about Hannibal or were they uh, talking about Alexander the White? I, I know I'm asking a number of questions here, but uh, I just was wondering uh, what their religious beliefs were and uh, what role Octavian had in the fall of the Roman Empire. Uh, I'd like to listen off air if that'd be okay, Mike. That'd be fine. That'd be fine, Jerry. I appreciate you calling in today. Well, Octavian um, probably didn't have anything to do with the fall of no, the empire. He's no, much he was earlier. A, he was earlier, and he was a very important. In fact, he was the first emperor of the Roman Empire. Well, he's also known as Augustus. Well, you can call yeah. Caesar an, an emperor, well, but he was most most of the historians of the period apparently called Caesar the first one, but uh, historians that came later named him. Yeah, this, the Senate still had the power in the time of Caesar and so forth, but. Uh, I'm just going on what you can read that he was known as Octa- Octavian, a Caesar, Augustus, Augustus just meaning meaning revered, or whatever the case may be, and um, basically he consolidated what Caesar had done and made the emperor began the process of the emperors turning into demigods in the Roman Empire. Now he didn't have a lot of um, any really any real role in the fall of the Roman Empire, except that he was probably the beginning of the empire before Augustus, before Caesar, for sure. The Roman the Roman government was a republic in the general sense of the word. Well, there had and, been a couple of of leaders before that that encroached upon those powers. You mean like our presidents keep encroaching yeah, on their constitutional Yeah, yeah, they duties. they did that. This is the um, same thing going on today as went on back then. Right. There were a couple before that, but the real importance of Caesar is relative to Palestine. Caesar and his generals were the first. You mean one, Julius Caesar? Julius Caesar. Yes, uh, he was the first one to actually rule over what we call Palestine or Judea today. Uh, his uh, his generals captured that, and he was instrumental later on, along with the triumvirate, which ruled shortly after him, which of part was Augustus, uh, or Octavian, I think is the way he was listed in, in the triumvirate. Um, basically, they were the ones that consolidated that, and Mark Anthony actually had a role in putting Herod the Great on the, on the throne in, uh, in right. Judea. Well, it says in Luke 2, uh, verse 1, it says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this census took place while Quirinius was the governor governing Syria, which would include Palestine. And so all, all went to be registered and everyone to his own city. And Joseph came up out of Galilee, uh, out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, and took his wife Mary, of course, or you know, betrothed, his betrothed wife, Mary, uh, who was with child. And so uh, in any event, that's the that's where we first meet Augustus in the Bible. And then there's also at the birth of Jesus Christ, because he's the one who uh, we have to remember, Augustus and Octavian are the same person. Yeah, they are exactly the same person. That, that right. uh, he just changed his name. Now there's other there's apparently another Augustus because in Acts 25, Paul had to go before Caesar, and they called him Augustus. Like I say, Caesar is a title; it's not a name. It's, I know it's the name of a salad, but it's a, <laughs> it's a title of uh, of an of an emperor. Okay, and Augustus generally meant the one who is revered or honored, and so forth. And so his name was Octavian, but they called him Caesar Augustus, the revered or honored. Caesar and Caesar then became the title of all of the Roman Empire emperors. Even though we call Caesar the first one, we call Julius Caesar. He took that title as name. His name was Julius. So they don't name things the way we do now. But uh, this, the first one, the Augustus, is um, neither one of these Augustus here in the Bible have anything to do with the fall of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was kind of at its peak almost, or getting moving up to its peak at the time of the birth of Christ and the beginning of the church some 30 years after that time. Now, as far as the crossing of the Alps, that was done by uh, Hannibal. Hannibal. And it was not really the Alps as part of Switzerland, but the ones that are part of northern Italy. Yes. The uh, Now, the the name escapes me, Gary. I just had 
Palatine Alps now. There's some of their name for it. I forgot. Yeah. I cannot think of it. And I learned all this at one time. So because, he's the uh, one who brought yeah. the elephants. And, of course, anybody who's going to conquer Italy uh, from the north had to come down through those mountains. And he brought the elephants in there and so forth. So, And, and that was um, not referenced at all in the Bible that I know of anything like that. Now then, he mentioned Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great actually went the other way. He went toward the east. Uh, and Rome and all of that was toward the west. So, And the, and the Alps, part of Switzerland, all to the west of where we're concerned with uh, uh, the scripture and Judea and Palestine, as we call it today. Yeah, and I think, uh, if I can find this reference here, uh, I think Daniel, I think the book of Daniel references Alexander the Great. Yes, uh, yes, he, uh, he, he um, it's called it. the Greeks. He doesn't say Alexander the Great no, per he, se, he but it's the, the Greeks, and that's that's where it comes from. Now, Philip of Macedon, as Jerry pointed out, was the father of Alexander the Great. Yeah. Macedon was what we would call a Greek province, one of the city-states of Greece. Okay, it was the other ones. And Nor the northern ones. part of Greece. The northern part, and he was a pretty powerful leader. Uh, Philip of Macedon was, known for his horses and so forth. But Alexander the Greatest's son expanded and united all of the Greeks together, uh, somewhat by force and somewhat by the fact that he was a leader. And oh. then he began to expand his conquests throughout all the known world. Of course, the, the uh, romantic story is that he, at age 33, I think it is, he sat down and wept because he had no more worlds to conquer and then tried to come back home and died of syphilis. He was a no, very much of a known womanizer, died of syphilis on the way back. His empire was split into four parts, and um, this is referenced. Oh, in this the, is oh, this is a great part of Daniel. I mean, I, I'm, I'm looking. I cannot think of his chapter seven there, Gary. I'm trying to find this here. Uh, I, I am uh, at a little bit of a loss. So give me just a second, and I will look this up. Well, I, I was looking for something else because there's there's some important history concerning Judea and the Roman emperors that lead us to things, and I, I really wanted to. Uh, take a look at that um, because there's a lot of misconception about that. Julius Caesar was actually the first Roman to rule over what is now Palestine or what we call Judea in the Bible or Israel. Uh, and that was in, you know, pretty close to 65, 62 AD, somewhere around in there. One of his generals actually went in and took that part of the land. And there's a prophecy relative to that. And I, I had a reference to it. And I'm like you, Mike, which, I can't which find one, which it. Which one is it, Gary? Which, um, uh, let, let give me, me another clue again. Because yeah, I'm, let me see if I can find that. It's, it's, um, it's not one of those things you run across real close. I ran across it in uh, basically in one of uh, Milton S. Terry's books. Well, the, the, the Dan, Dan, in Daniel 7, there is a dream of Belshazzar, the emperor of uh, the emperor at that time of the Persian Empire, uh, was had a dream. And uh, the vision of the four beasts, is, it's often called here in Daniel 7. And Daniel tried to keep this matter to himself and so forth. It says in, in chapter 7, verse 2, In my vision at the night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up a great, the great sea. That'd be the Mediterranean, but most likely. As Daniel watched, four great beasts, each different from the others, emerged from, you know, from this. The four, first beast, in, chapter, in verse 4 of Daniel 7, is, a lion, is like a lion and has the wings of an eagle. And the wings are torn off the beast stands up and looks like a man. And um, it's the, the angel who interprets this dream tells Daniel, the four great beasts are the four kings that will rise from the earth. And apparently this first beast is representative of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And you saw that a little bit earlier in the book of Daniel. The second beast is like a bear, it says. In verse 5, it was raised up from on one of its sides and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. So it's a bear standing up. It's got three ribs like it just killed an animal. It's devouring it. And the voice tells the second beast to devour the flesh till it's satisfied. This is the Medo-Persian Empire. 
and so forth, and Persia is going to be dominant, and so forth. The three ribs apparently symbolize some of the nations that were devoured by the Medes and Persians, Babylon, Lydia, and Egypt, some of the big countries most people think. Then, and then the, the third beast is like a leopard, except it has four wings on its back and four heads, according to verse 6 of Daniel 7. This beast is given authority to rule. The third beast represents Greece, an empire known for the swiftness of its conquest. Now, who would that be? That's Good. Alexander the Great. Okay, historically, at the empires of, of that time, right around, and historically, they just follow one upon another in this area of the world. And Alexander conquered what we call the known world at that time, uh, of in Egypt and Asia. And they, he very swiftly conquered these other countries, the Greek armies did. And then the four heads are predictive of the four-way division of the empire after Alexander died, which I mentioned just a moment ago. It was divided into four of his four generals. He had no sons, no heirs. It divided into four generals. And that, that really sets up even the history in the, of the Bible times because that land, part of the land was given over these generals became the empires they were ruled during over Palestine at that time or had as a protectorate and so forth and so um, then you go on he goes on from there the final beast then it's the most dreadful and terrifying it's very powerful verse 7 has bronze claws large iron teeth crush and devoured its victims and trample underfoot whatever was left totally annihilating its prey fourth beast has ten horns and this creature represents apparently the Roman Empire that crushed all its foes and had, you know, ten heads and so forth. So these are the, this is a vision of the history of world empires from the time of Daniel, who lived, um, what is it, about 700 A.D., something somewhere around there, a little bit before that time, I think. It gives this kind of vision of these, well, not seven. Yeah, about 700 A.D. 700 to 600 A.D. is when Daniel lived, right around that time. I, I, I'm saying the wrong thing, but I'm on my mind. 600 to 700 B.C. Yes. Not A.D. Pardon yes. me. Yes. Uh, scratch that out. Not a. Not after Christ. Before Christ. These things. Actually, actually, um, I think uh, Alexander was around 300. He was three. Yeah. So, so Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel live are in the 700s. The Roman, the Alexander the Great goes down to the mid three, the mid 300s. Right. I think he died in 333 or 334 yeah. BC, if memory serves. Alexander the Great did, and then you got some of the predictions going on down closer to Christ because his four generals took over all the way down, uh, predicting into the time of Christ and so and so and the Roman Empire existed at the time of Christ. So this is a long swath of history, and um, the fourth beast gets killed. And his body is burned. A son of man comes down from heaven in the clouds, and and he approaches the ancient of days. And Daniel seven thirteen is led into his presence. And this man is given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All the kings of, of the earth worship him. And this kingdom that he establishes, this son of man, is everlasting and indestructible. So obviously that's Christ who comes and in his judgment destroys the Roman Empire and establishes a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So this is, you know. Anyway, this is uh, a lot of the prophecy. So, yes, Alexander the Great does figure into the Bible in this oblique way, and that he's referenced in this vision of Daniel as being one of these great empires that would arise following the Babylonian and the Persian Empire, the Greek, and then the Roman. The four there are, are the Syrian, Syrians are not included. I think it's Babylonian, Medo Persian, Greek, and then Roman empires are the beasts that Daniel sees. Um, that's a pretty cursory look at those uh, things. But then at the fourth, during the fourth empire, Daniel is basically predicting a different empire is going to arise. It's going to destroy right. all these. So Daniel's not predicting the end of the world here. Or no, as a matter Antichrist, as, the, as people think the so-called Antichrist is going to come at the end of time, that's not what he's predicting that, you see. Well, as a matter of fact, there is... Uh there's uh, basically references in Daniel all the way up through uh, the Roman Empire in chapter 11 that brings us all the way up to Christ in chapter 12. 
But uh, now, see, here's the. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Yeah, go, go ahead. Here's the kind of thing that that premillennialists do. They 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 read this prophecy. Now we're getting way off of what Jerry asked, but that's okay. Um, he brought it up, so we'll take it where we want to. But he, well, anyway, I, I'm going to I want to keep it back to, you know, basically what we're looking at in, in the Bible and what's, what's all right, well, valuable what, for us. And yes, okay. here, here's what they do, though, about this. And I want people to, this is hard to do on the radio and think through this. But here are these four empires that Daniel predicts. The fourth one is the Roman Empire and the Son of Man comes during that time. Right. And event and at some eventually destroys this Roman Empire, establishes his own kingdom. Well, you see, this happened in the book of Acts. That's exactly what was Peter said there that this is what was happening there. Now then, here, re, I just looked up something and listen to this comment about this. Um, the world leader in the end, in the end about this, the world leader that Daniel saw was the Antichrist, this fourth beast and the one who would come, the ruler who will come, who sets up the abomination in Daniel 9, 27. Now listen, given the fact that the Antichrist emerges from the fourth beast leads us to surmise that in the end times there will be a revival of the Roman Empire, featuring a coalition of ten world leaders. Pardon me, so where's the yeah yeah where's this fact that the Antichrist will emerge at the end of time? The Bible says in the book of Second John that the Antichrist was already present in John's day, and that there were many antichrists. They've got the word antichrist, the antichrist capitalized here in this article I'm looking yeah. at. Uh, that's the kind of assumption that, it, it, well, it's, and, and you it's have a conclusion based on the assumption that that's based on the, that's based on the conclusion. It's circular reasoning. In other words, Daniel is saying that at the time when this, the time of the fourth beast, Christ is coming, and this, that he is going to destroy that empire, which he did, not in one day, but over a period of time. The Roman Empire was destroyed. The Antichrist was already present. Christ had come in judgment upon the kingdoms of the world and established his own spiritual kingdom at that time. Which Peter was says the, the prophets were pointing to a spiritual kingdom that was to be established at that time at the resurrection of Christ. Which was the plan all along. Always the plan. Not, not some prophecy that we got to have a, rev a revival of the Roman Empire. The Bible says absolutely zero about a revival of the Roman Empire. But since we have to assume that the prophecies of Daniel are talking about an earthly kingdom, or the prophecies about an earthly kingdom, not a spiritual kingdom, we have to then throw it off to the end of time. This is the great fallacy of premillennial dispensationalism, this right here. And so, yes, these beasts do have something to do with... Um, or with Alexander the Great and, and the emperors of Rome and so forth, but probably not the way most people think that they do, if that makes any sense, Gary. Yeah, and, and a lot of it comes from not understanding the context and who is being addressed, particularly in Daniel and the prophets. Uh, here's one, I'm just going to use an example, Mike. Here's one in Daniel 11, uh, beginning in verse 40. Uh, it says, at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots, horsemen, many ships, and they shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, pass through. He shall also enter the glorious land. Now, what's the glorious land? Well, that's, that's Judea. That's, that's the subject of Daniel and his prophecies. Right. And many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent peoples of Ammon. Now, that time of the end is the time of the end of the Jews, not the time of the end of the world. Right. And uh, the end of the Jewish uh, way of things. The end of yeah. the Jewish, you know, basically. Well, uh, the old fat people would say the Jewish economy. The Jewish meaning, economy. Meaning the, way of, right. the Jewish way of life. Now, here's where you got to know the history, and this, this is what, what bothers me. Now, Julius Caesar came in in 60... I think it was 63 A.D., one of his right, right, generals right, yes. came in and conquered what we call Palestine today, which is the area that Ju Daniel was talking about. Okay, He came in and conquered that area, but he didn't conquer Edom, Moab, and Ammon. Yeah. Right. Now, later on, when August, when the 
the second triumvirate, which was Mark Anthony, a guy by the name of Lepidus, and Augustus, basically when that came apart, uh, Mark Anthony allied himself with Egypt, and basically they revolted against uh, the Roman Empire. And so Augustus came in from the north. When you see the king of the north, it's the approach to Judea. It's not. If you were from Egypt, you approached Judea from the south. That's the king of the south. Whoever came from the north had to come from because the of north. the great desert on because the east they, and the great sea Arab on the west. Desert. Right. So they had to come in from the north. So Rome comes down from the north. So the king of the north now is Rome, and basically they have another battle over that same land. Okay. King of the north in the old. Right. Old and and, he, and here's a note about that battle when they were fighting. It says Alice Gallus. One of Augustus's generals fails to take Edom and Moab. And that's a note in history, right there that you see again. So again, which is a pro- which, pre- which which pinpoints which, what he's talking about. Which pinpoints in what history in in history. Daniel chapter eleven is a historical note all the way through to the end, and when you get to Daniel twelve, it's all about the kingdom of Christ again. Right. And and what he's trying to do, the reason for these prophecies is not just to titillate us and so forth. It is to provide. The people of Israel later could look and say, hmm, this happened exactly. This is happening like exactly. Yeah. Like said now, they would. weren't supposed to have enough information to predict what was going to happen exactly, but they had enough information to recognize it to when back. it came. Right, and look back and see this. But it's telling them, it's the, com- the message of Daniel is a comforting thing. They're in captivity. This is not going to last, he's saying. This is not going to last. These great kingdoms that seem indestructible, God will bring them down, and he will judge and destroy these rulers, especially the ones who pit themselves against his people. This is the message of the book of Revelation. It isn't about predicting some minute events at the end of time. It's about giving people who were alive then when the book was written, and us today, comfort that these great world powers that are so against Christ and his people— will not last, will not, will not stand, God will bring them into judgment. So they will not, not to fear them in that way. It's not, not going to stay the not, way it is. They will not be successful against Jesus. It, I, I don't, this will sound arrogant to, to people, but I do not feel this in my heart when I say this. But I, I do not uh, fear in these, the people in the United States of America, around the world, these world globalists who are, exalting themselves against the people of God around the world and trying to persecute anything they call Christian. Uh, We ought not to fear them because they will not stand. It will not be allowed to continue this way. I don't know how long it will continue. I'm not sure what destruction they can wreak uh, on people before they're destroyed. But God will bring them into judgment, and he always has, he always will, and you and I as Christians can take comfort in that fact. We don't need to lose heart. We don't need to give up. We don't need to give in to them and cater to them like so many Christians are doing today. They just, whatever, you know, they, have, they had a big split, I think, is in the, the Methodist church here recently uh, over, again, LGBT issues. So many people caving in to these things because they're afraid that they'll lose people. Well, they keep losing people anyway because they're not uh, faithful to the Lord. And and they should not be catering to these these world powers. I, I, I'm rambling on here, Gary. But well, I, I just want to say one thing, Mike. I, I want to something that I think is very important in study of the prophets. And I've done a good deal of work in the prophets. Um, you know, basically Milton S. Terry does some really good work in symbolism and the prophets. But one of the things that you need to know is the history of Western civilization. In other words, you need to know the empires that were built in that area, the the Syrians, the, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Medo-Persians, then the Greeks, and then the Romans, that basically our forefathers took many of the principles from their governments in that history and, and put them into our government. Not only that, but they used scripture just as well to place the foundations of our laws and the things that we do in terms of justice into the government that we have now. And it's very important in studying those books in the Bible to know very well that history. 
and the details of it. Basically, when I started digging into some of the details of what went on uh, that are pointed to in Daniel chapter 11, it's, it's I, I, all I can tell you is it's just a, a faith builder par excellence, if you will. I, I can't put it any other way, but you have to know that history. Now, I know there are a lot of people out there that hate history, and it's not a fun study for a lot of people. It is for me, so I enjoyed it. But it's a tremendous help in understanding these things. Well, yes, yeah, so the Bible is the Bible is not like the Quran or uh, some of the other uh, the Bhagavad Gita or the other the, the other writings of the Hindus. It's not like that in that it's a philosophy book or a book of poetry or prose or ramblings. Uh, you know, it's the Bible is rooted in actual people and events and places that we can get our teeth into to a large degree. It's rooted in history, and that culminates in the historic event of the resurrection of Christ, which if it's not true historically, Christianity is a fraud and a fake, and we need to be fishing this morning, Gary. Yeah. If if there's no resurrection, we'd rather we're getting ready to watch playoff games on TV because if the if Christ isn't raised, none of this makes any difference. And, and yes, we can then read our poetry books of the like uh, Cahil Gibran, or we can read the Bhagavad Gita, the Kama Sutra, whatever whatever uh, aspect of paganism you like, because they're rooted not in history, but in human ideas. The Bible's rooted in historical events, and God ties these the doctrines and teachings of the Bible of the Bible to these historical people and events. Well, the, the, these events that occur and the things that we... I'm going to say this again. and Bear with me. I'm going to read a scripture that's about six verses long or maybe a little more, maybe seven, about basically the importance of the resurrection. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I'm going to begin in verse 12. He says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. Yeah, because because we're believing in something that's that's false, and they were suffering because of this belief. That's First Corinthians and, chapter fifteen, and they had no reason 12. to be suffering if there is no resurrection. And and basically, Mike, I've heard on television some preachers say they don't believe that Christ really rose no, from the dead. No. Because that would that would put that would put them at odds with quote science unquote, and it would make them a, a, an object of scorn to believe in something like uh, the resurrection of the dead or that the Christ resurrection was a historical event. And so they waver and they waffle about these things. And this is what what we're being warned against in the Bible. There's no reason to fear what these people say. They will all. They will all be proven over time to be wrong about the things that they say that oppose that oppose the truth of the scriptures. It happens over and over again. You know, I read an article the other day, even for example, and I've been predicting this for a while. I'm not trying to be a prophet or something, but just China, the Chinese Empire, godless, authoritarian, totalitarian, wicked, cruel anti-christian to the core the current not not chinese people the chinese government the 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 authoritarian communists the reason they're like this is partly because they're communists and partly because they're pagans but uh they are really in a very very weakened position and they've been they've been they're basically putting up a good front but their society is in danger and their economic system is in danger and uh, the people who are analyzing this are kind of stunned at how people e so easily fall for all of the lies that they tell about almost everything. And and so we can expect, don't be, so, listen, I don't know what's going to happen. 
don't be surprised if within our lifetime in a few short years, Gary, the Chinese, the Chinese uh, government falls completely from what they think is the top position and their society begins to come unraveled. And I, it's, it's like a it's like one of these sliding glass doors, you know, the glass it, or you, you can it looks so solid, but and you, you can bang on it. But when you chip the corner just the right way, one little dink on the corner of those shatters them in a million pieces. And this is the trouble or this is the fat, the, the uh, weakness of these great empires. Is it God just knows where to put that little hammer and go one little chink and the whole thing falls apart. And you saw the Babylonian Empire so great. No one could ever conquer it, conquer it. Belshazzar is at the feast and he sees the writing on the wall. Mene, Mene, Tekel, Eupharsin. And he it interpreted You've been found weighed in the balances and found wanting. And that very night, their army was overrun by the Medes and Persians who came and blocked up the river and came under the city, something they never in a million years expected. And this great empire uh, crushed, uh, was crushed in a night. Their own empire, defeated by savages from the north. And they had a weak, the weakness was shown because, their weakness was shown. The same thing is going to happen to China. The same thing will happen to the United States if we continue on this godless path that we're on. It may happen to and, us and, first. And arrogating, and arrogating ourselves to a position of God that we can tell everybody what they have to do all the time as a federal government. It may happen to us first. You're and right. This, and decide which children live and die in the womb. That, that's, that, that's probably one of the worst things that I can, I can see. Sorry. But I'd like to point out two Two uh, verses in Daniel, if you don't mind, Mike. We got time to talk about that. Yeah, hang on once. Hold on. Can you hold that thought yeah. for a second? We got a text from uh, Dana. He says, I think I've read that Martin Luther didn't believe that Daniel was inspired, but didn't deny the truth within it because of the multiple future accuracies that told, that were to him were too good to be true. Uh, that made him suspicious about them. Uh, so I'm not 100% sure of, that, sure of this, except that uh, maybe he didn't believe that Daniel was inspired, but he, he had to give the book credit because here they are. It lays out world history long before. Now, right. now what what um, unbelieving scholars have done is they've tried to push Daniel closer to us in time so that these aren't really prophecies. That's always the trick. So they're not really prophecies. They're just recounting what he knows has already happened. Well, appreciate that text. By yeah, the, the problem the problem they have with that, in, in part, is Mike that the Septuagint, which actually predates some of the events in Daniel, include exact copies of Daniel. Yes, and this and is so, and, so and, 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 and they and, and they so know that was written before some of these events occurred. Right now, that can't you can't say that all no. of the events in Daniel were written later. You have to admit that some of those events. It's occurred. like Isaiah. They, the, the scholars say that Isaiah could be broken up in at least two parts, uh, chapters one through thirty-nine and forty through sixty-six, because forty through sixty-six include all these prophecies. And some say and even so more they, parts. Yeah, and so then they then they be, and and they began to divide. Well, when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. I'm old enough to remember when they said, "Oh, when we read the Dead Sea Scrolls, we're going to find out that all this Daniel is written in three or four parts, and it's all." cobbled together to make it look like it's prophecies. Well, when they unrolled the scrolls, to have complete scrolls, there's yeah. no breaks in this scroll, they're, they're and they're all. way older than these than they said they were. So the Dead Sea Scrolls, in spite of the fact that they sometimes contain different translations, different words, or a few a few differences in text, not not enough to me to to uh, cause a problem with the Masoretic text, but they certainly. Uh, don't tell you that Isaiah was somebody who wrote the stuff after the fact and written by two or three right. different Isaiahs. Dan, Daniel the same way. And, and, and there's definite proof that some of the events were written ahead of time in Daniel, even though you can't have definitive proof. But if some of those events were written beforehand, why not just accept the book as, it, as it's been carried down? Daniel chapter 11, verses 3 uh, and 4. Mike, uh, then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. And when he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds. 
of heaven, but not among his posterity or according to his dominion with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be uprooted even for others besides these. Now that's Daniel chapter 11 and 12. Now that's kind of, you don't know exactly what's going to happen here, but let's look at Daniel chapter 8, verse 20. The ram which you saw, having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia, and the male goat in the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its posterity. So basically he's talking about the Greek king. Four nations are going to arise, but not of his posterity. Now, what does that mean? Well, beforehand you probably couldn't predict, but let's look at what happened in history. Alexander the Great came, conquered all, came like a goat leaping over everything in Daniel and conquered that entire region all the way out to India. And basically what happened? Alexander dies. He has a son, but his son doesn't become king. Four of his generals... He didn't have a son. He didn't have a successor. Right. He didn't have a successor. Four of his generals established four kingdoms over that area. Ptolemy over Egypt, Seleucus over what was now Syria and Babylon, Lysimaeus over what is now Turkey, and Cassandra, which is over Greece. Now, when you look at that in history, what does it fit? Does it fit those passages? Yeah, exactly. It sure does. Exactly. And so that's what we're what we're going on here. And the Ptolemies begin, and the Seleucids begin to were dominant at the time of Christ. Before right. that time, and up through up through what the was time left of, of the Ptolemies were right. still in control of Egypt. Uh, and then the and then the other one, the Seleucids were in charge of Syria, which was... And when you read about the king of the south and the king of the north, most of the time, not all of the time, but because the king of Syria had to go up through the north, around the rivers, and then approach from the, from the north, you're talking about the king of... Uh, you're talking about the Seleucids or the Medo-Persians or the Babylonians, and the kings that came from Egypt had to approach from the south. They're the kings of the south. So when you read those things, understand what that is. That's, the king of the north is not Russia, okay, as the premillennialists say, and so on. So take a look at the historical context. Look at the history. Uh, another chapter that's really misunderstood is Matthew 24 when it comes oh, yeah. to that thing. You, if you don't know the history again of what happened, you, you get the same problem. Now listen to this. This is the, from the other, the first detection before Dana. Emory, I, I asked him, I texted back and said, why didn't Daniel or why didn't Martin Luther believe in Daniel's inspiration? And he said the section of the four horns and one dominant horn, Antiochus Epiphanes, was too exact. <laughs> in other words, that's why Martin Luther that's didn't my, believe it. This because was too, it was too this exact too good, too as to exact. what exactly had happened later in history. And that's a, that's why well that's exactly why a lot of people don't believe in it uh, scholarly people and you know intelligentsia supposedly because it's too exact which is the whole point of prophecy of exact of course um, that's interesting um, uh, and and there, there are passages in Isaiah and passages in Jeremiah and Ezekiel you kind of get the same thing though I, I Ezekiel is a little bit more symbolic than some of the others uh, Daniel is quite literal. Yeah, and and is I just, he also says here like James he had his own set set of the canon and rejected and received what he wanted. Well, now what he means by that is Martin Luther's the one who since he didn't like James's James. view of salvation by faith and works, and that faith only cannot save. He didn't like that part, so he said James was a right strawy epistle or an epistle of straw, a right strawy epistle. Paul wrote epistles of gold and silver like Romans and Galatians. But, but if you look, because he didn't like what it said. So, yeah, know, but if you, you look go. closely at what Paul said, Paul didn't deny that works were necessary. I know, I, well, I know. But J, but James, uh, he, he was too direct against James his teaching was so direct, only. you know, he's but you're yeah. right. But Paul never taught what Martin Luther says he taught. He certainly doesn't teach what. And that brings up maybe we should go on to the next, next subject of the sinner's prayer that somebody texted in about. 
uh, yeah, let's, let's, that, that whole have thing. We, have we got time to do yeah, that? Yeah, let me, uh, we do. And let me, um, let me just get but the numbers there, again out there before we change. But there's so here. much history, folks. If you if you if you won't come, you know, text us. We can we can give you some information if you some want. Sources. That's right. Well, uh, before we move on, and thank you, Jerry, for these this question. Probably didn't what you intended, but we appreciate the question and and the discussion. Uh, but you can reach. We are just Christians here. My name is Mike Schmidt. Gary Jones with me. In case you missed at the beginning of the show, you can reach us at at seven seven two. 340-1590 is the number to reach us. We'll, we can have a conversation or ask a question. You can criticize this. You can say, well, I think you're wrong about that. We would love that. Not, you're not, we're not going to mistreat you when you call in. Or you can reach us by text message, as you've already heard this morning, 772-260-6120 or 772-260-6120. Six two two zero are the text numbers, and so uh, we've got these. Uh, we get text, uh, and we appreciate that very much. And we had a text last week uh, uh, on the show. I don't know if I can pull it up here, right? And I got so many of these different, uh, so many different texts during the week. Let me see if I can run back there and get the exact quote for this from a, a listener. Uh, give me a second here. Why don't it? Why isn't it showing up? Okay, it's not showing up here hmm, on my list. Well, anyway, the text was uh, about this about the sinner's prayer. And um, when did the when did the sinner's prayer come in? And what all that kind of stuff, the history of the sinner's prayer, and so forth. So I would uh, maybe somebody's texting me now about that. Hang on one second here, getting a text. So I want to talk about that with you just a little bit. We kind of touched on this last week, but I, I couldn't find what I wanted to uh, bring up. And I, I ran across a couple of things I had put aside here in the last few months about the sinner's prayer. And because if you're a Protestant in this country, and probably if you're a Roman Catholic in this country, you've heard of the sinner's prayer. It's been talked about a good portion of my life, at least since the 70s, because of the campaign for Christ, Ken Bright on the campuses and universities. Some of you are old enough to remember that. And it's and Billy Graham popularized the idea of the sinner's prayer in his preaching. And so you have Billy Graham, for all the some people say the good things that he did, never never did teach the whole truth about the plan of salvation or how people should be saved, because it would make him very unpopular if he did. But the um the sinner's prayer, according to some people, and I just got this right in front of me here. We'll just start right here, is finally dying, according to this article, as far as religious history. There's been a, a real pushback against it in the last few years from people in several different denominations. Well, now, I've, you know, in churches of Christ, people never teach the sinner's prayer because it's not what the Bible teaches. Uh, so that that's the problem of telling people this kind of cheap salvation, a false sense of security that if you just, they hand you a piece of paper with a prayer written on it, that if you just say this, just say this and you'll be saved is a cheap way to get to, to get to salvation because it doesn't really involve repentance. And there's a whole generations of people in this country that, that uh, claim to be on their way to heaven because they repeated a prayer 20 years ago. And and one guy, and I think he's a Baptist, Paul Washer, even said that he compared the sinner's prayer and the way it's been taught and from the Bible standpoint of it as like a flu shot, you know, that you get the shot one time, then you get immunity the rest of your life. So you don't have to say this prayer one time in your life and Lord comes into your heart because you say this prayer and then everything is taken care of and you got nothing to worry about because you're safe forever and that's it. Now, the Bible doesn't teach any such thing as that, but but it's biblically inaccurate because it's, the sinner's prayer simply does not exist in the Bible. Now, it's hard to me to prove that to you, except you, unless you read the Bible and you will see that it's just no prayer that's ever stated in the Bible. No, it, we're not even told to pray to be saved in the, in the New Testament. Prayer is not part of being saved in the New Testament. And yet this sinner's prayers become 
the big thing that people say to be safe. They, they try to bring in Revelation 3.20 sometimes, behold, where Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. You know, well, the, that, the trouble with that verse is, that in the context of that verse, yes, Jesus is knocking at a door, but it's the idea that he, he, here's a church that needs to repent, that's full of sinners. It isn't the individual that shut him out. It's an unrepentant church that shut him out. It has nothing to do with uh, us inviting Jesus in to give us salvation. It has zero to do with that in the context. And you would think in the book of Acts, there's just case after case after case of conversion of people who are pagans or otherwise Jews coming to Christ. And nowhere in any of those cases is there anything like a sinner's prayer. The only thing you could find in Acts chapter 8 is a man who has already become a Christian by believing and being baptized, who then sins, and he's told to repent that, and pray that the this, this sin of his heart might be forgiven, which also goes against another concept in the sinner's prayer, that once you say this prayer, you're saved forever and you can never be lost. Well, right there in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 8, Simon becomes a Christian. He believes and is baptized counted among the believers, and he wants to buy the, the, the apostles' miraculous powers with money. He offers them money to buy it, and Peter tells him, you need to pray and repent that this sin might be forgiven you. Well, that's a, that proves the idea that, yes, once you're saved and are a Christian, you can, become, you can be lost by sin, not only of your actions, but your heart. And so it disproves two of the things that we're talking about, that a prayer by itself is going to save you by faith alone, which, of course, a sinner's prayer is not faith alone. A sinner's prayer is faith plus a prayer. Isn't that interesting how people use this word alone? We've talked about this many times. They use the word alone. I, it's like the guy in Princess Bride about incon, the word inconceivable. I don't think this word means what you think it means. When you say you're saved by faith alone, how do you then say you got to say a prayer? Because saying a prayer is not faith alone. How do you say you have to repent or or believe or, or uh, how do you say that God's grace saves you alone? They say we're saved by grace alone. Well, I thought you were saved by faith alone. Why can't we just use the Bible terminology? We're saved by grace. We're saved by faith. We're saved by works. We're saved by all these things together. Uh, instead of trying to make it some kind of a doctrine that in a way lets us off the hook. Um and so you've got to, the problem is, the his, so now we're seeing so many of these whole lots of these uh, evangelicals are now coming around and saying, well, maybe we're not. Maybe the sinner's prayer isn't, um, you know, isn't really in the Bible. It's really not the great thing that people say it is. What about the origin of the sinner's prayer? You might get the impression, Gary, I'm against the sinner's prayer. You think? <laughs> I, I'm sorry. Sometimes I, I it's just, it, it's caused so much damage and misinformation to people in my lifetime. And it's, sometimes it's hard to undo this damage that's been done. With, on this show, let me back up a little. On this show, we keep tell, saying this. I don't know if people get the importance of it. One of the main things we try to get across on this radio show is that we need to do a plain and simple reading of the Bible and not be dominated by philosophies and doctrines of men. And so the, the thing that's the problem, with the problem with the sinner's prayer from the standpoint of the average person out there, not a theologian or someone like that, but the average person that I try to teach or that we run into and so forth, or that listens to this show, is the idea that they've been taught that, as I mentioned, we're saved by faith alone, and that's all by God does everything, you do nothing, and that once you're saved, you can never be lost. All these doctrines are not found in the Bible. They come out of, first, out of Martin Luther, as was mentioned before, to cut us off on the subject of the end of the day, and his teaching of salvation by faith alone. And then John Calvin accentuated that. Elaborated on Elaborated, and they, they weren't united together, but they, were go, they went the same direction. And, and what they're forgetting, what people forget, and it dawned on me after being a preacher for many years, what the, the problem was that, that was going on here and talking to people, to well-meaning, sincere people who love the Bible, who love God in, their, uh, in, in the way that they know, is that most all of the, these 
men were simply reactionaries. It's very difficult, Gary, to get to the truth of any matter by simply being a reactionary. And by that, I mean not someone who has thought through something from the beginning and tried to figure out all the nooks and crannies and and ins and outs of something, but someone who is simply reacting to the evil of someone else. So we have this problem in society where uh, men are men abuse or women or sexually abuse women. And so then because because that gets ignored sometimes in history and was not often taken seriously, then we come up with the teaching, believe all women. Now, I'm against that that belief because I don't believe all women. I don't believe all men. I believe we should take each case on its own merits and evaluate and find the truth in that case. Because women are liars just like men are liars. Women are deceived just like men are deceived. Women are wicked just like men are wicked. And so when you come up, when you just react and say, well, since women have been abused and neglected, we've got to believe all women. You've just made a reactionary leap and you will never get to the truth. You will never fix the problem. If you want to fix the problem of of abuse, Jesus said something very simple that applies across the board. The truth will set you free. So if the Catholic Church, uh, that may be the worst analogy in the history of the world to some people, but I want you to think about that. Because I've been cascaded on the Internet for saying, no, I don't believe all women. I think we should look at at each case and take it on its merits and try to find out truly what happened in truth. Uh, oh, no, I'm going to get sidetracked. Um, yeah, and we're running we're out already, of time. We're already sidetracked. But we got to go. We, we can't just look and say the Catholic Church was teaching wrong things about salvation at the time of Martin Luther. And they're teaching on indulgences and salvation by works and and prayers to Mary was all wrong. And so let's take a leap and go from that to salvation by faith alone. In other words, don't... It's a leap. Don't, don't just be a reactionary. Don't just turn 180 degrees. That doesn't get you to the truth. Either. It doesn't get you to the truth. It It's helpful, and then it gets you away from a false thing, but it doesn't get you to the truth. So the truth is, yes, the Catholic Church was wrong to teach that you could be saved by saying Hail Marys and buy your way out of purgatory or whatever the case may be. But it's not true to say that the New Testament teaches that you're saved by faith alone. And it has nothing to do with what you do, and that once you're saved, you're never lost. The New Testament, a plain reading of the New Testament can never get you to that point. You ne- it doesn't teach those things. And so we don't make our doctrines here at this church based on, on um, some kind of philosophy that man uh, that that man is can't can't do anything good. That's a philosophical assumption to say that people are hereditarily totally depraved is a philosophical assumption that Martin Luther made, not supported by the Bible, okay, and and not supported by the facts of the teaching of the Bible. And once you make that assumption, now you build a logical system of Calvinism on that assumption that man has no free will, that God does it all, and he can't be lost. All those things come from that. They don't come from reading the Bible plainly. Okay, Gary. One one last thought. The sinner's prayer is not always called the sinner's prayer. Okay? I've heard advertisements, and I'm going to mention a name here. I don't mean mean to tell you that I think Franklin Graham is insincere in what he says or that some of the things that he says are not true. But when he advertises on television that all you have to do to be saved is pray with me, then basically that's not in the scripture. Well, he's not telling what the Bible says there, but how to be saved. Right. Okay, that's and the he, problem. And he may be a nice and man when, and all that, but he's wrong about those things. But he's wrong and tragically wrong. Tragically wrong about those things. And basically, when he says pray with me, that's the sinner's prayer, though he doesn't call it the sinner's prayer. Call it that sinner's prayer. So yeah, they may be. You're saying they may be abandoning the sinner's prayer, but not really abandoning the sinner's abandoning prayer. prayer in that sense. All right. Well, we're going to have to wrap. This, we're going to have to wrap this up today. Not we're going to. We're going to have to wrap this up today. Uh, and we appreciate well, you listening. We're going to have to touch on this again. We, we will do this again next week and start off there at least we can. But we want to encourage you to take a look at our website. We, we got to record a show. We might just yeah. Do we it might there. do a recording. We are uh, we, we are just Christians dot com. We are just Christians dot com is the name of the show. I mean, name of our website. Go there. You can find recordings of this show, recordings of sermons, information about the church. We invite you to do that. And we hope that you'll continue to listen to the show each week. You can also watch our service if you look us up on Facebook or YouTube. 
We Are Just Christians. You'll find live streaming and recordings of our services here uh, each week. Thanks for listening. May God bless you and tune in again next week. You've been listening to We Are Just Christians live from Savona Church on WPSL Port St. Lucie.